Hey, this is Kenya, the Afro-Pagan, and this is the first episode. We are going to tackle Kwame Adapa's book called The Akan, Other Africans, and the Sirius Star System. I think this is a very important book, and it has been overlooked. Not enough people have seen it, have read it. Uh, Y'all need to go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, somebody find this book and pour you some wine steep some life everlasting tea put your feet up and read this because this is important for the world for africans and africans of the diaspora this is the ish okay So a little bit about me before we get started. I'm an artist. I'm a spiritualist, certified yoga instructor, crystal and chakra balancer. And I'm just someone who seeks the truth. I am a natural researcher. I have to know things. So while I've been on my journey of discovering my God self, This book practically fell into my lap. I'm so thankful it did because it changed my life and it brought things into perspective. And through synchronicities I'm not going to get into now, I have begun to realize my God self. Okay? And you'll figure out why as the episodes go on. But you'll, this is just amazing. Yeah, people, Africans have a connection with Sirius. We do. And here's proof. Let's start with Kwame Adapa's uh, second chapter in his book. He gives a little synopsis on the Dogon. He goes on to say, Dogon people are an indigenous tribe who occupy a region in Mali, south of the Sahara Desert in Africa. There are about 100,000 members in the tribe. They are a reclusive tribe of cave and hillside dwelling farming people inhabiting a sparse rocky plateau in southeastern Mali, West Africa. They, they live in the Hambori Mountains near Timbuktu. They are believed to be of Egyptian descent. After living in Libya for a time, they settled in Mali, West Africa, bringing with them astronomy legends dating from before 3200 BC. The first Western scientists to visit and study the Dogon people were French anthropologists, doctors Marcel Griol and Germain Dieterlin who initially made contact with them in 1931 and continued to research them for the next three decades, culminating in a detailed study conducted conducted between 1946 to 1950. During their work, these anthropologists documented the traditional mythology and sacred beliefs of the Dogon, which included an extraordinary body of ancient lore regarding Sirius the brilliant far distant dog star are you are you all salivating yet oh my gosh 
It's like sitting on dynamite here. Okay, let's keep going. The priest told them of a secret Dogon myth about the star Sirius, 8.6 light years from the Earth. The priest said that Sirius had a companion star that was invisible to the human eye. They also stated that the star moved in a 50-year elliptical orbit around Sirius, that it was small and incredibly heavy, and that it rotated on its axis. Sirius, which we now call Sirius A, was not seen through a telescope until, until 1862 and was not photographed until 1970. Wow. So it took Western scientists that long to discover Sirius A. In the meantime, the Dogon knew all about it. They were kicking it with Sirius A. Okay, let's go on. The Dogon name for Sirius B, Potolo, consists of the word for star, Tolo, and Po, the name of the smallest seed known to them. By this name, they describe the star's smallness. It is, they say, the smallest thing there is. They also claim that it is the heaviest star and white. The tribe claims that Po is composed of a mysterious, super-dense metal called Sagala, which they declare is heavier than all the iron on Earth. Not until 1926 did Western science discover that this tiny star is a white dwarf, a category star characterized by very great density. In the case of Sirius B, astronomers have estimated that a single cubic meter of its matter weighs about 20,000 tons. Wow. Many artifacts were found describing the star system, including a statue examined by Dieterlin that is about 400 years old. They go on to say that it has an elliptical orbit, with Sirius A at one foci of the ellipse as it is, that the orbital period is 50 years. The actual figure is 50.04 plus 0.09 years, boy, and that the star rotates on its own axis. It does. The Dogon also describe a third star in the Sirius system called Ma sorghum female in orbit around the star they say is a single satellite to date Emeya has not been identified by astronomers I'm sure it will be at some point in addition to their knowledge of Sirius B the Dogon mythology includes Saturn's rings and Jupiter's four major moons they have four calendars for the Sun moon Sirius and Venus and have long known that planets orbit the sun. The Dogon say their astronomical knowledge was given to them by the Nomos, amphibious beings sent to Earth from Sirius for the benefit of mankind. The name comes from a Dogon word meaning to make one drink, and the Nomos are called masters of the water, the monitors and the teachers. The Dogon tells the legend of the Nomos awful-looking beings who arrived in a vessel along with fire and thunder. After they arrived here, they put out a reservoir of water onto the earth, then dove into the water. There are references in the oral traditions, drawings, and cuneiform tablets of the Dogon to human-looking beings who have feet, but who are portrayed as having large fish skin running down their bodies. The Nomos 
were more fish-like than human and had to live in water. They were saviors and spiritual guardians. The Nomo divided his body among men to feed them. That is why it is also said that as the universe had drunk of his body, the Nomo also made men drink. He gave all his life principles to human beings. Kwame Adapa goes on to say, the Nomo was crucified and resurrected and in the future will again visit the earth, this time in human form. Later, he will assume his amphibious form and will rule the world from the waters. Dogon mythology is known only by a number of their priests and is a complex, complex system of knowledge. Such carefully guarded secrets would not be divulged to friendly strangers very easily. If the star Maya is eventually discovered in the Sirius system, this would give considerable weight to the Dogon story. Can I just interject here? Emeya reminds me of Yameya. Connection? Maybe? I don't know. Let's keep going. The Nomos, who could live on land but dwelled mostly in the sea, were part fish like merfolk, mermaids, and mermen. Similar creatures have been noted in other ancient civilizations, such as Sumer, Babylonians Oannes, Akkadia's Ea, Sumer's Enki, and Egypt's goddess Isis, or Aset, as us melanated folk know her. Anyway, it was from the Nomos that the Dogon claimed their knowledge of the heavens. The Dogon also claimed that a third star, Emeya, existed in the Sirius system. Larger and lighter than Sirius B, this star revolved around Sirius as well, and around it orbited a planet from which the Nomos came, Sirius A. What do you think so far? Okay, let's keep moving. On to chapter 2.2. Mr. Adapa focuses on J.G. Kristaller and his amazing dictionary. Okay, here we go. I would like to introduce the reader to an important Christian priest from the Basel Mission in Switzerland who also acted as a linguist and compiled a dictionary for the Akam language. His name was Dr. Johann Gottlieb Kristaller, and he did his work in the Akwapim region of Ghana, where the Basel Mission was situated. Born on the 19th of November, 1827, Scorpio, Mercury, and Moon in Sagittarius in Stuttgart, South Germany, he has been called the founder of scientific linguistic research in West Africa. He translated the Bible into Chui, the Akan language with his linguistic skills composed language tools on the language. His dictionary, grammar, and book on Akan proverbs, proverbs, excuse me, 3,600 of them remain classics in the study of Akan language and are still among the best books on the subject. They are also cross-referenced, making it easy for a researcher to use his materials. Because of his work, it is possible to have access to a great many Akan words as found in the Ashante, Akiam, Fonte, Aquapim, and other dialects. For this book, I used the 1933 second edition revised and expanded print 
of his dictionary in this book. Okay, so we're going to get into linguistics. The word nomo has the exact meaning in Akan and Dogon languages. We're on 2.3 now. Having heard about Temple's book several years ago, he refers to Robert Temple, the serious mystery book. It was only recently that I decided to finally read the book. After a cursory flip through, I found on page 299 of Temple's 1999 edition that it said among the Dogon people, the word nomo means to make one drink. It was quite a shock to me because this same word in the Akan language has the same meaning with the same inflections. Here is what Kristaller's dictionary says. Nome, to drink. Nisu equals water, nisa equals palm, wine, etc., or any fluid. Kristaller, 1933, page 350, verb. In normal spoken Akan language, the word nom or nomo or namo do this justice, but forgive me if I have the absolute worst pronunciation. Sorry. Mepe nisa nam pa'a means I like drinking alcohol a lot. This was for me the first cue that got me thinking about any possible connection between the Akan, the Dogon, and Sears tradition. It was time to sit down to properly read the book. Ah, let's go on to chapter three, the Falcon Clan. Now, I'm excited because last week on the news, it was reported that Zimbabwe got one of its bird sculptures back, which warmed my heart because, you know, Zimbabwe is a hotbed for all these beings that we are going to read about later on. And for them to get their bird back, their falcon clan icon back, that is amazing. Those are icons of power. Yes. Okay, let's get into third chapter. Introducing Meyerowitz and Reindolf. Eva Meyerowitz, scholar on African culture. Eva Meyer-Rowitz was a South African anthropologist and scholar who traveled through much of Africa collecting information on African traditions. In Ghana, she was privy to the attention of prominent chiefs and clan elders, and as a result, her books are first-rate source material. My guess is that because she approached a con history and culture form from an outsider's perspective, she was able to make certain connections which were to her obvious but were perhaps missed by some of the intellectuals of the time, except perhaps J.B. Dankua, whose introduction and works come later in this book. Oh, that should be awesome too. Okay, let's keep going. All right. On reaching page 221 of The Serious Mystery under the chapter Origins of the Dogon, I saw Meyer Rowitz and the Akan being mentioned for the first time. Temple was quoting Robert Graves' book, 
Greek myths. In fact, he quoted Braves who had paraphrased some information on the Akan from, from one of Eva Myrowitz's books. I need hardly point out, Robert Temple says, to the alert reader that the southern bank of the upper Niger is home of the Dogon. What should be investigated on the spot is the relation which subsists between this sad, shaggy remnant of the Garamantians and the surrounding Dogon and other tribes. Also, the villagers of Koramanti might be discovered to possess serious lore themselves. In TSM, or The Serious Mystery, Temple seems to be convinced that the Garamantians are a Libyo-Berber group that, due to invasion by the Romans, were forced to flee deeper into West Africa. They then married the local people they met. According to Temple, these Garamantians are actually Greek members of the Argonauts. In this work, I shall follow a different hypothesis. I shall show that linguistic evidence as well as oral history points to the fact that the original Garamantians were no other than the Coromanti, who I shall show to be members of the Falcon clan and ancestors of the Akan people of today. Ooh, that's a lot. I suggest that it is likely Temple never actually read Myrowitz's work in The Serious Mystery. He mentions that her books are out of print. For an oral history stated clearly and unequivocally in her book, Divine Kingship in Ghana and Ancient Egypt, that shows that the ancestors of the Akan were the Garamantians. Okay. Let me talk just a little bit about the Serious Mystery book. It was a good book for what it was, but it left me frustrated. Dude, Robert Temple, didn't get to the heart of the matter. He didn't come out and say that all of these monuments around the world point to Sirius. He just kept intimating, which annoyed me. I wanted to toss the book. But for what it was, it got my juices flowing. It made me really think... And it pointed me in all sorts of directions until I came across the Akan, other Africans in the Sirius star system. So I'll give Temple props for that. Anyway, let's get back to Kwame Adapa's book. So um, this next section, he talks about Carl Reindorf, warrior, priest, medical doctor, and historian. Karl Reindorf was a Ghanaian man whose mother was of the Ga royal family and whose father was Danish. He was one of the most educated Ghanaians of his time, born in 1841, having first been educated by the Danish at Christianborg and then subsequently in Europe, where he eventually gained an MD. He was also called the Order of Christian Priests. I must point out that the early European colonists seemed to refuse to educate the local people without first converting them to Christianity. Well, we all know how that goes. Anyway, there is an intriguing story in James Mooney's book, History, Myths, and Sacred Formulas of the Cherokee, where the Salagi, Cherokee, see section 3.4 for explanation of the name, 
clan elders refused to have their children indoctrinated in the Christian way. In their minds, they did not see why their children could not be educated without having to take on Christian values. The white Americans refused, of course. These two writers have been introduced because like Christoller, their works are quoted in this book. Okay. Three point two, Acroma Coroma the Falcon. For Christoller's dictionary, we learn about the meaning of the Akan word acaroma and the root word coroma. Acaroma, the word in Akan languages for hawk, falcon. Wow. See Christoller, page two fifty seven. I suggest that the coroma is the root word for which acaroma is based that they both refer to and mean falcon hawk. It is worthwhile to point out that there is another Akan Chui word that is used to refer to hawk falcon, which is osensa. However, this word is a general term used to refer to a bird of prey and can apply to falcon hawk or harrier, etc. Could the root word sansa be related to sante and asante? Something to ponder. So literally, the karomansi are the falcon people. How about that? The serious tradition is embedded in the language and in the customs and the culture of the Akan people. The suffix T or Tsi is very common in Ashante and Fante dialects of the Akan language. The suffix may mean to tear or it could mean a part of. So the sentence Wo-Ate or Wo-Ate means have you heard or have you taken that part of what has been said. Another sentence which shows the meaning to tear may be tefi dua nasona fabre mi, which means tear it from the tree and bring it to me. In any case, the point I'm trying to make here is that the suffix t at the end of the names of the Akan groups Ashanti and Fanti, who actually call, call themselves Mefanti, are called Fanti by other Akan people, could very well mean this one group and that one group. It should not take an incredible stretch of imagination for the reader to realize that the Garamanti, Garamantians of Herodotus were the Coromanti, the Falcon people, at least originally, or to be specific, the Falcon clan of the Akan people. Whoa. <laughs> okay. Let's go on. Uh, chapter 3, Section 3. Appearance of the Coromanti in Various History Books In Reindorf's book, A History of the Gold Coast and Asante, he describes a vivid story of a battle between two Akan groups, the Ashanti and the Akiem. This is where I first heard Coromante mentioned. Battle of Coromante, Reindorf, Reindorf page 66. And... Adapa goes on to say, in about 1730, Akam rebelled again. Osei Tutu at once marched an army into the place and fought a bloody battle at Coromante, defeated the Akam who, ha who, having been driven across the Pra, placed an ambuscade there. The victorious Osei Tutu, after his many triumphs, fell into it in one Monday and was killed whilst crossing the river, some say, while ascending the hill which is named Coromante in memory of the battle. In Dr. Afrifa's book, The Akiem Factor in Ghana's History, page 49, 
There was a map drawn in 1729 by M.D. Anvil that shows Coromantin Hill and Coromantin Mountains. Anvil was European. All in areas by the coast within Achium and Fonte, two Akong groups' lands. Hmm. In the late Professor Abdu Boahen's book, Topics in West African History, he mentions on page 62, one Dutch agent called Valkenberg who makes mention of the Coromancy. The Akanists are the shrewdest nation of all, who those who abut in the Gold Coast being the occupants of a district which can be visited in three or four days from the coast. These people, then, are those who already in many years have annexed the trade along the coast from the castle de Mina, as far as Coromantian, and are able to thwart their neighbors out of it so that one trades with no one but them. There's a little fun aside to point out that Valkenberg goes on to butcher a series of native names in his writing and a subsequent pronunciation of those names based on their spellings. In Rattray's book, Religion and Art in Ashante, he says the prescribed word, word Coromantin, or sometimes also Memenda, meaning Saturday, referring to the disaster which overtook the Ashanti army in the reign of Osaiyeo when it was defeated by the Fante. The Coromantins are also mentioned in a book entitled Hebrewism of West Africa, written in 1930 by one priest, Reverend Williams. So to sum up, the main reason why I gave all these pieces of evidence about the Coromante is to link this name to the histories and to the actual physical locations of the Akan people. Okay. And he goes on to talk about the Garamantians are the Coromante people. I think he pretty much solved that mystery. So let's, uh, so now that we know about the Garamantians and Coromantians, let's skip over to 3.6 to Meyer Ward's oral history of the Falcon clan of the Akan. So Kwame Adapa says, I shall now give the actual story of the exodus of the Falcon clan as told to Eva Myricks by the elder she spoke with on her field work survey. This is a story Temple will have undoubtedly read if he had had the chance to read any of her books. Rather, it seems he could only find the paraphrased version through graves. It is a most interesting story. So the story goes. More than a thousand years ago, the ancestors of the kings and queens, mothers of Bono, Ashante, Ebono, Taki, Iman, who belonged to the Ayoko clan, whose totem is Falcon, ruled over a kingdom called Diadem or Jadem, literally Dia or Ja Confederation, which was situated in the region west of the Tibesti mountain range that separates the Sahara from Nubia. Following the disturbances caused by the Arab conquest of North Africa in the 7th and 8th centuries, princes and princesses of the Dia dynasty emigrated. They were accompanied by a large number of people and they settled along the Niger Bend in the region roughly between the Jene and Timbuktu. 
Either they were incorporated into an already existing Dia kingdom or confederation, or possibly they were among its founders. In Dia, or Ja, near Timbuktu, the predecessors of the Bono and Bono Takiya men, kings and queen mothers, founded Diala, the capital of a city-state of the same name. The predecessors of the Ashanti kings and queen mothers founded it, it is believed, Diana. Hmm. When at the beginning of the 11th century, Islamized Turegs from the Sahara conquered the kingdom, the Falcon clan people, being unwilling, unwilling to accept Islam, migrated accompanied by thousands of their subjects. The Diala people finally founded the first Gabon or Bono kingdom in the region between the Red and White Volta rivers. Among the Mo, Grunsi-speaking aboriginals whom they colonized. When the first Bono kingdom was conquered, rather less than 300 years later by the ancestors of, of the priest rulers of Mosi, Princess Amiya, together with her three sons and a large following left, they sought refuge in Banja, or anglicized Ganja, a state in the Northern territories of Ghana which had been founded at an earlier date by Gabon peoples from Dia on the Niger Bend. Desiring to found their own state, however, they soon moved farther south and founded the second Gabon or Bono kingdom south of the Black Volta River about 1295. The princess Amiya'a, later called Amiya'a Kesi the Great and third son Asaman, became the first queen mother and king of the new state. When the Diana people left the Najiben region, they took a different route. They led by the prince, a son of the queen mother. Okay, let's continue after that brief break. All right, so um, let's return now to Herodotus and the Garamantians or Coromancy. So Kwame Adapa says, the key point of the whole section is that the people Herodotus referred to as the Garamantians were ancestors of the Akan, the Coromanti as they likely called themselves back then. I think this is a new discovery because I haven't seen it ever being mentioned anywhere else. It is taken for granted that the Garamantians were a Libico Berber, but my suspicion is that this refers to a later people, that the ones who established the Garamantian country were the Coromanti, the Falcon people. This discovery has several implications. The first is that the Garamantians that Herodotus writes about must be seen in a different light in relation to their history with the ancient Akan. The second significant implication is that if there was one group of the Africans that had this name, Garamantians, Garamantes, then it's possible that some of the other funny names found in the works of Herodotus, such as the Nasamonians or the Ammonians, the Atarantes, etc. See map below. He shows a map um, where the Garamantians and the 
Nasamonians and the Amamonians settled. It's an interesting map. Anyway, he goes on to say, uh, referring to the region around present-day Libya or North Africa in general, likely originally referred to Africans who have lived in other Kushite settlements. We have already seen in section 2.1 that the Dogon is said to have settled in Libya for a time before moving to their current home. This is possibly why people may be baffled when reading what Herodotus has to say about this region. In essence, I support the view that Herodotus was not a liar, as has been insinuated by some modern historians. It is just that he talked about people in places, some of which either no longer exist as they were during this time, or were in African names which modern people will recognize only until such names are decoded using African languages. There's a big chance that where he was talking about funny named people on the African continents, it must have been Africans. It is logical. This is very significant. However, in order not to generalize, the onus falls primarily on African researchers who have access to an understanding of African languages to decipher these funny names if they feel inclined to do so. Of course, any researcher who is genuinely bent on discovering the truth and has access to African cultural, including oral histories, etc., and linguistic tools may do the trick. In Robert Temple's work, he makes a suggestion that the Garamantians are Greek. I think the truth is that the Garamanti or Garamantian is a Greek word for an African people who existed in a certain place at the time of Herodotus. Very little is known about the Garamantians because their culture must have been oral. After Herodotus, other writers refer to the Garamantians as a Greek people because of the name Herodotus gave to them. Okay. Let's go on to 3.8, a possible migration of the Falcon people after Garama. One faction went far west to set up what was then to become the ancient Ghana Empire to the west. Another faction decided to go southward, eventually founding Bono Mansu and the present Akan. It could also be that the Karamanti all went south to begin with where they eventually settle in the region around Timbuktu. This must have been long before the rise of the Mande and of Mali. At this point, one group could have gone on to found ancient Ghana. I think one of these two theories is true, that either there was initially a parting of ways after Garama, causing one faction to go farther west, while another went south, or the two groups first went south before one went west. Perhaps after the defeat or Coromante by an invading group, migration could have happened in waves. It could be that gradually the Berber became stronger than the Akan and pushed them further south or west so that they then became the dominant people in that region. Presumably, the later Garamantines were predominantly Berber at the Akan's left. The south faction first went to Jado and settled there for perhaps six to seven hundred years. During this time, the West faction was already getting established in ancient Ghana, then due to further problems with the Berber, who at this time may have taken over the former Kushite lands and had grown in strength. 
The South faction then moved once again further south towards Timbuktu. It is also worthy to remember that it was due to problems with the Berber, Almoravids, that the Ghana Empire was destabilized in the first place, leading to inner rebellion by vassal states and its eventual breakup. There is historical evidence on this from Arabic sources. If the Berber managed to destabilize the Ghana Empire in the 11th century AD, it's possible that the Berber also destabilized the Coromanti in the Libyan region much earlier in history. Also remember that it was due to the same Berber invasions that the Moroccans, together with Portuguese and other European mercenaries, attacked and destroyed the Songhai Empire this time much later on in the history of West Africa. Wow. Wow. Ah. That's the way of the world. Conquer migration, conquer migration. Anyway, let's move on to 3.9, the Berber of North Africa. It is true that Berbers, Caspian-type people, who actually prefer to go by other names such as the Amazigh, have occupied North Africa for some time, even before the arrival of the Phoenicians Arabs. However, one must realize that the Berber peoples were initially refugees from Atlantis. I won't go into that here since that is another story. The Berbers and the pre-Hellenic people, Ionian, Minoan, were exiles. Think of what Plato said about these people in Timaeus and Critias. While Africans have occupied the African continent for a very long time, and in the past they were also found in more areas in the Middle and Near East before the arrival and invasion of the Phoenicians. I mention this because, Kwame says, it is entirely possible that in reference to the funny names of Herodotus referring to peoples of the North African region, some of the names may have originally referred to Africans, while some may have originally referred to Berbian and Caspians. However, only research will reveal this. Temple refuses to consider Atlantis as a possibility, despite the words of even the great Plato. Okay, I gotta interject here. How long will historians and researchers ignore Atlantis? I mean, Come on, if you're not going to believe Plato, who are you going to believe? Your left toe? Anyway. In Temple's The Serious Mystery, chapter The Serious Mystery Today, page 13, that the Atlantis theory implies an absence of extraterrestrial contact. In this respect, I will say that he is absolutely incorrect. Perhaps that is why he talks more about Proclus in his book than about Plato himself. To be fair, however, Proclus developed a unique system of knowledge based on but slightly different from Plato's writings. Chapter 3, Section 10, Brief Peek into the Greater Serious Tradition. The serious mystery is deep and wide and includes not only sub-Saharan Africa, Egypt, Samaria, and Babylon, but further into other cultures and histories of indigenous and non-indigenous earth people, Atlantis, Lemurian, Dravidia, Ugobi, Desert China, other planets in this solar system which at one time has civilizations and all the way back to the star system, 
Sirius, and even into other star system, systems such as Pleiades and Orion. This is the super brief outline of the complete Sirius mystery. Anyone who gets hold of Robert Morning Sky's books, especially his LA transcript, will discover for themselves the real deal with respect to Syrian involvement on Earth. This guy cracked a serious mystery in his book that I primarily use, together with J.B. Danquois' book, The Akan Doctrine of God, to help me decode the serious mystery as it relates to the traditions of the Akan in part two of this book. Robert Morningsky uses ancient language such as Egyptian and Sumerian in his writings, and since the Akan language is an ancient language, it seemed fitting and right to use both works together. Now, I've searched for Robert Morningsky's books, and they're all out of print, but I have been able to find them online, like the Terror Papers, really interesting. I sat with that for three, four hours. Like with Kwame Adapa's book, The Terror Papers, my brain exploded. I mean, it's just, it, it was like so much, too much. And there's just so much we don't know. Okay, getting back to reading the book. So now we're on chapter three, section 11, where Kwame Adapa talks about Credo Mutwa's, excuse me, Baba Credo Mutwa's account of the Bakwama, members of the Falcon clan in Lesotville. Okay. In an interview carried out by the Spectrum magazine, Credo Mutwa talks about a group called the Bakwama in Lesotho. Before I go into that, let me just say a few things about Mutwa. He is a Zulu shaman who has received initiations from the secret societies of several African ethnic groups. There's an amazing story about him in Bradford Keeney's book, Basima Zulu Credo Mutwa, Zulu Hai Senusi, where part of his initiation story is told. The other part is told in part five of Credo's book, Indaba, My Children. Both are fun reads. Basically, Mutwa is a true fountain of knowledge and a gift to modern humanity for sharing his traditions for the benefit of all. And I highly agree with that. Check out uh, Indaba, My Children. And he has other books. Read them. They're long. They're big books. Read them. Read them. Read them. I give thanks to Credo Mutwa every day. Okay. For revealing our African galactic origins. Yep, I said it. African galactic origins. Back to the book. In a telephone interview carried out by Spectrum magazine, Mutwa links the Bakwama people of Lesotho with ancient Egypt. Now, anyone who knows about Bantu names for Bantu ethnic groups know that many of them begin with the prefix Ba. There are some who also have the prefix Ma. I will not be surprised if it turns out that the prefix ba has anything to do with the Akan word ba, which means child. If we were to break up the ba natu into two syllables, the meaning that emerges is children of natu or the people of natu. So who is this natu? If we take a cue from the way the ancient Egyptians wrote their words, which is to cancel out the vowels, natu becomes nat. Where does this line of reasoning lead? I'm thinking about the Egyptian goddess Nit. And he goes on to say, 
in this section, I would like to suggest that knit, knit or knit or neat is in the name Banatu is actually a Syrian reptilian goddess, the one known as Isis or Aset and elsewhere as Ninhur Sag. In Robert Morning Sky's book, One of the World's Oldest Religion, page 208, he quotes a phrase about Isis from the Woman's Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets. Isis was the oldest of the old, the goddess from whom all becoming arose. The creatress gave birth to the sun, i.e. Ra, giver of life, the queen mother of Egypt, the one who is all in Roman mysteries. Isis was the Egyptian throne. Isis was Ma'at, the motherhood principle called right, justice, truth, or all-seeing eye. Isis revealed the mysteries of the stars to God, who was her son. Isis was the creating and destroying goddess, mother of life, and crone of death. Isis was Hathor, Mut, Ma'at, Sekhmet, Sati, Heket, Bast, Neet, etc. Isis was the terrible one, lady of the rainstorm, destroyer, of the souls of men, devourer of the bodies of men, orderer, producer, and maker of slaughter, hewer in pieces and blood, ahibit, lady of hair, fire, lover, pure one, lover of slaughterings, cutter off of heads, devoted one, lady of the great house, hider of creations, clother, conqueror of hearts, swallower of them, knife which cut it when its name is uttered, slayer of those who approach thy flame. <sighs> And he says, and aptly so, man, this Syrian reptilian goddess loves to have accolades like the queen in the cartoon Alice in Wonderland on page 143 of Robert Morningside's book. He quotes again the various names of this reptilian goddess, this time quoting several sources. <sighs> I shall only give the names in this book. However, the interested reader can find the sources of page 143 of book one. Queen of the Sea, Mary was Mora, Mary, Mary El, Marina, Marianne, Mary Ham, Mary Ross, Stella Maris, Marianne, Mary Hine, Mertia, Mura, Maria, Melina, Isis, Bast, Haver, Ahabit, Jail, Jah, Jahi, Jaho, Ayi, Iahu, Anat, Yahu, Ishtar, Astaroth, Astarte, Astareth, Esther, Devi, Danu, Diti, Demeter, Nit, Har, Ninhar, Sag, Diasiria, Pelagia, Elithia, Hymen, Urania, Andromophones, and others. In all her forms, she was the queen of the sea, the queen of heaven, and the queen of the stars. What is also of interest here is that in the Akan culture, although the king rules, some say the real power lies with the queen mother, who is literally his mother. The queen mother is said to be the owner of the state. In her book, The Sacred of the State, Akan, Maya Rowitz has this to say. Maya Rowitz, page 27, SSA. The Ohima female, female king or queen mother, as she is called by Europeans, is regarded by the Akan as the owner of the state. The Oheni male king, nowadays called Omanheni, is appointed by the queen mother as the ruler of the state. The queen mother is regarded by her people as the daughter of the moon, who symbolizes the female characteristics of Niame. For example, Enki's mother's side, Regillian bird reptilian, section 5.12, the supreme being who created the universe by giving birth to the sun. Kwame Adapa goes on to say, I think this, apart from the fact that it describes a naturalist trinity, 
excuse me, a matrilineal system of chieftaincy also reflects aspects of Syrian and reptilian influence in a Khan culture. Boom, boom, and boom again. There you go. There you have it. Wow. Ah, oh, he just dropped some knowledge about a set knit Ninher Sag, and we'll get into Ninher Sag later on in the book, and we will get into Set and Enki later on, and also in his sequel, which I think is incredibly important. We really should cover the sequel to the Akan Other Africans in the Sirius Star System. So, wow, that was a lot. Um, I'm sure you were shocked, shocked as I was when I first read that Isis or Aset, I like to call her Aset, was actually Hathor and then her Sag, Inanna, Astarte, Wow, and all the other names, Mary, <laughs> um, Wow. I'm, I don't know. And I've read this already, so it's not a surprise. It's just, wow. How are you all feeling after hearing this? Whew. Well, okay. I think that deserves a break. So next time we'll continue on and then we'll finally get to learn more about uh, the Akan people of West Africa via J.B. Danqua. Kwame Adapa cites his book along with Meyer Waritz and other folk, but um, he really dives into um, J.B. Danqua the most. So we'll get to that section. Are you excited? I'm excited. Till next time. Peace out.